0: into the book of Isaiah, and you'll remember that last week, uh, the the chapter one really talks about uh, places of how righteousness and justice are to be features of the faithful life, Um, and that when you're one who is following the way of the Lord, that these are characteristic or at least should be uh, characteristics we aspire for, the ways that we live our lives in community with one another here in this congregation, but also as we live our our lives in community with the larger culture in which we find ourselves in the world in which we live. That's challenging, but even more challenging, I'd imagine here, is if you had to be one like Isaiah who had to go and tell a group of people who were not living that way that they were to redirect their lives. If you're the one to go and uh, proclaim that message, to share that with them, uh, it wouldn't be easy. That would be difficult, particularly if that group had abandoned that way of life a long time ago. We've got in our own culture a phrase, don't shoot the messenger, that exists for that very reason. It is a difficult, difficult task. Of course, Isaiah will be called here in this text, we've already heard that this morning, to be such a messenger. To borrow a note from the psalmist at this point, particularly Psalm 121, where does my help come from? Where does Isaiah's help come from at this this place? Well, we're gonna look at that this morning. And so as we turn our attention uh, to the text, as we turn our attention uh, to the sermon, let's turn our attention to this last week. We had an inauguration in our country, right? We had an inauguration. I hope you had a chance to to catch portions of that, if not the whole thing. A new president, a new beginning, a new administration. Uh, I don't know how you vote it. You don't know how I vote it. Uh, I guess it doesn't matter how you vote at this point. What does matter is that we are all living at a time in history where a a new administration has come in, and it's a historic administration, particularly as we think about our vice president and, and what that means for us as as a culture, as a people, as we try to live into some pretty important commitments. The transitions like this come with a lot of emotion. They come with a lot of emotions. For some people, the emotion is one of joy, anticipation of what is to come in the years ahead. There's optimism there, there's that sense of hope. While others might feel anxiousness, you might be feeling anxious at this point, uh, perhaps dread about what's coming. Uh, because you imagine that the world uh, that will happen in the next four years or even more is going to not work in your favor. and It doesn't matter when the inauguration is, whether that was January of 2017 or January of 2021. People across different divides uh, have those same feelings or feelings across that range, different shades of that. I would imagine back in Isaiah's day that there was a lot of feelings about what the future would hold particularly as King Uzziah is described at the very beginning of our passage as being in the year of his death. Now, whether that was when he died or in the year that he died uh, is when this vision happens. But to recognize that Uzziah had been on the throne for 52 years, 52 years. And during that time, he had been an effective ruler. It says then, uh, if you look in Second Chronicles chapter 26, uh, that during his reign, he expanded the territory of the nation, he was known for building extensive fortifications uh, in the city and all kinds of public works. He also improved the nation's military. And so this was someone who had moved the nation uh, from one place to even a stronger type position. So you imagine when that person steps out of the scene, when that person's gone, uh, what's going to happen to our strength? What's going to happen to who we are? It says in Second Chronicles 26:15, Uzziah's fame spread far for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. Right, So this is, this is a very, very positive message for this, who this king is. At the same time, that same strength would give way to pride. I think we know where that goes. Wisdom warns us in the book of Proverbs that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So in the year of Uzziah's death, transition carries a certain anxiousness. People are anxious. But equally, fear-inducing is the emerging threat of the Assyrian Empire and its aggression. The future before this people looks uncertain and it lacks promise. But it's precisely at these kinds of moments, it's precisely at that type of historical moment that a prophet can speak into the heart of people, into the heart of a nation, and can bring consolation to those people. We know this in our own experience. We know this in our own nation. Think about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, who we commemorated his life uh, this past week. He drew on such prophetic language. This is a person, this is a person who drew on uh, this type of language to inspire hearers. In fact, King drew on Amos chapter five oftentimes when he spoke, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. And that's inspiration, but he's not the only one. Go back to the inauguration. This past week, I was introduced, and I think many of you also were introduced, to a very gifted young poet, Amanda Gorman, who presented her poem, The Hill We Climb, and if you listen to that poem carefully uh, that she offered during the inaugural ceremonies, she says in in the poem at one point, Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. That's a line right out of her poem but it's also a reference that George Washington used to use in his letters and correspondence, and he used it a number of times. But even older than George Washington, the prophet Micah in chapter four would say those words. So to a nation in transition, ours or even a nation back in Isaiah's day, prophetic words can be used to console, uh, to bring a sense of calm, a presence in the midst of hurried and anxious lives. So, of course, the question here emerges as to whether or not our particular text from a prophet has anything of consolation uh, to say to the people then as well as people today. And, of course, the answer here is we don't have to look far to find that. Notice verse 1 in our text this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. There it is. Did you catch it? Did you catch that? The consolation is right in verse 1. Let me assure you the prophet says something that's so simple, it's so simple, but yet it's so extraordinarily profound. We have in our English Bibles, and if you look in your own English Bible, you'll see this tradition that's characterized there, in which the divine name, the covenant name, what we might say the personal name for God, oftentimes translated, if you go in older English translations, Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, uh, Yavah, um, different ways of people pronouncing it or, or looking at this word, but it's this covenant name of of god this very sacred personal name in our english translations what happens is they the technical term for this is called the tetragrammaton and what they do is they capitalize the word lord make it all caps And so if you look throughout the old testament you'll see whenever that word appears in your english bible will be in all four caps uh, for that you'll notice that in one, isaiah one, that the tetragrammaton is not in play it is later in the passage but you'll notice in that first verse It's not. It's not capitalized across there, and it's for a very good reason. What's going on here is Isaiah is literally saying to us, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Adonai sitting on the throne. I saw the sovereign, the Lord, not in covenant personal name, but rather saying something bigger here. He's saying, I saw the true sovereign. I saw the true Lord sitting on the throne. When the one who was the mortal king has died, Let me point your attention now to who I saw. I saw the king who couldn't die, the one who is Lord. And he goes on to explain who that is later on using that covenant name, so we see the connection there. He saw the true king of the nation here. And this true king is different, fundamentally different, than the mortal counterpart Uzziah. Unlike Uzziah who died and who is unceremoniously described as having grown proud to his own destruction and being false to the Lord his God. You can read that again, 2 Chronicles 26, and beginning in verse 16. You can read of his demise as a king. This sovereign, this living God that Isaiah sees, is holy. And that holiness speaks to God's goodness, and it speaks to God's power. I love how the Bible Project uses a kind of a metaphor for how to understand God's holiness talks about it from the standpoint of the sun. You can look at the sun, but you can't look at it for very long. (laughs) You're going to burn your eyes. There's great benefit by being in the presence of the sun at a distance on our planet. It's warm, it's comforting, it brings life to vegetation, it helps us in our own, if we think about us here in the Northwest, it helps us with our depression that occurs. Uh, The sun has great, great benefit for us at a distance. And so being in the sun's presence is something where we can derive not only benefit, uh, but also great joy. But if you stand too close to the sun, if you get closer, you begin to realize that that same benefit becomes something that we cannot possibly tolerate. It destroys us. And that's a good way to think about holiness. And I'd encourage you, if you have a chance, to jump out to the Bible Project and check out their video on holiness. It does a great job of walking through that. But for Isaiah, holiness is a big, big characteristic of God. It's one to take note of. He actually will refer to God as the Holy One of Israel 26 times uh, throughout the book. Just to put that into comparison, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's only used six times. And so it was a hugely, hugely important thing for him. But our text this morning gives indicators as to what that holiness looks like or that that holiness is actually present. The clearest, uh, of course, is when the seraphim themselves, uh, these fiery type beings, these possibly serpentine Uh, type creatures uh, who signify coming with God on the throne room of this coming judgment uh, who are now singing literally holy, holy, holy. So we know that God is holy just from their own words that they sing. But probably less clear is the seraphim's own response or reaction. They've got these six set of wings, right? They have one set of wings that they cover their faces. And so they can't look, they can't look at God because of God's holiness. Again, think about that imagery of the sun. They also have a set of wings where it says they cover their feet. Uh, In in Old Testament Judaism, uh, you kind of look at uh, when people talk about covering feet, it's oftentimes a euphemism for covering one's genitals or covering one's uh, parts of their body that you wouldn't want to expose to to the public. And so there's a sense of modesty that occurs here. Again, recognition of God's holiness and an appropriate decorum as one comes and comes before a holy God. And then, of course, there's the third set of wings that they have in which they fly about and they sing their song. And so, again, there's a movement towards song and service. Uh, These are all responses to one who is holy. Of course, that's not the only uh, response. Mark Twain is, uh, is said to have once quipped that man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. In the presence of a holy God, Isaiah does far more than blushes. What does he do he responds with terror woe is me and he responds with recognition i'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of the holiness of god there's a part of the human experience in which we recognize that what we're before is wholly other not just h-o-l-y but w-h-o holy completely different so much so that it exposes our own corruption, exposes our own sin, exposes our own uh, treatment of others, exposes our own inner thoughts. I did a web search this past week using uh, Google, and I I looked up, how would you respond if you met God? I was curious as to what people said. If they were to meet God, uh, how would they respond? And particularly in light of how Isaiah responds here, how would we in our own day respond? And here's what I found. It's rather consistent with Isaiah's response. People would say something. Some sort of words would be spoken at that that meeting with God. But what was different here was what was being said uh, in the top articles that came back in that search was more of a cavalier-type presence before God. People would either put God on trial. Why did you do this? Why did you allow this? What were you thinking when you did this move here? Or they would ask just a a, a question, you know, something that they've always wanted to know. Um, They would just ask as though they were visiting with Santa Claus and you just sit on God's lap and start asking questions. Of course, there were a few examples of people expressing gratitude for their life and their existence. But for the most part, like I said, it was rather cavalier how people would approach uh, God if they were to meet God. Our text this morning offers something quite different. Offers uh, quite a different response. The picture looks closer to what Dr. Michael Milton of Verkstein Theological Seminary uh, says here. He says, whenever we come face-to-face with the Lord Almighty, we begin to see who we are and who he is, and we are undone. There's a tension that we hold, and it's one that's uh, held within the Christian faith, but also in the Jewish faith. Uh, when we talk about any level of comprehension of who God is, And I think that tension is is best uh, characterized by what C.S. Lewis offered in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Remember how uh, Aslan the Lion is described? I think it was Mr. Beaver at this point who was describing him. He said, he isn't safe, but he is good. He isn't safe, but he is good. The holiness of God, as Isaiah recognizes, there's a feeling that God's not safe. But at the same time, we recognize that God is good. Isaiah, of course, at this moment is feeling rather undone. He's feeling like his life is in trouble. He feels like he is about uh, to be destroyed, and for good reason. He's keenly aware uh, that being in the presence of such magnificence, being in the presence of God as a mere mortal, as an unclean, guilty sinner, here he's standing here, he knows that judgment is coming, and he sees these fiery seraphim, and I'm sure he's imagining that it's coming very, very quickly. His doom his death will soon be upon him. And that's not just out of the air. He's not pulling that out somewhere. There probably was a very real sense of that feeling, but he's also familiar with Scripture. From Genesis to Exodus, from Deuteronomy to Judges, we see examples of people who expected to die. If you're not familiar with those texts, go watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) The variant. There's an expectation. There's an expectation in his own culture That if you were to see God, you would die. And so he has all of that bearing down on him at that very moment as he's literally in the presence of God. But there's another tradition. There's another tradition that we need to hear this morning. It's a tradition that says something that's very consistent with who God is. It's a tradition that even amidst the holy God, that God has still met with people and they still saw God where they saw the angel of the Lord and they lived. And God met with them as a way of confirming what God had planned for them. Whether that person is someone like Hagar in Genesis 16, or Jacob in Genesis 28, or Moses in Exodus 34, or Moses and the leaders of Israel in Exodus 24, or even Gideon in Judges chapter 6. In fact, such a visitation from God seems to enable the recipient to take action in a way that is required, but to take action when they seemed unable to do so in their own power. And that seems to be the case here for Isaiah, that God makes it possible for one who is unclean to be clean. And we shouldn't be too quick to cast ourselves in the role of Isaiah one through five where we might throw around a lot of woes at people, but to recognize that this same person recognizes his own lack and his own need from God, a God who is holy. We might, too, consider that should we be in the presence of God, we might be led to ruin. But the tradition says that God's love comes and intervenes. And we see in verse 7 that God's love comes as a seraphim, swoops down and takes the unclean lips and makes them clean. Burns away the sin, a promise not just for Isaiah, but one for the nation as well. Where does Isaiah's help come from? As he's one who's called and who's one who responds and says amidst such cleaning, send me. Where does his help come from? To come back to that question. It literally comes from God. The Holy One of Israel. In closing here, after his death, there was a collection of letters and papers from prison that were published uh, from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer that were published by a friend of his. One of those letters, Bonhoeffer writes uh, this about his, his own imprisonment. He says, I'm here for some purpose and I only hope that I may fulfill it. In the light of the great pur- purpose, all our privations and disappointments are trivial. Of course, Bonhoeffer here takes some solace and I'm sure uh, in his particular predicament that, that solace, I, I will emphasize the word some solace. He was in a very difficult place. But knowing that he had a purpose, Uh, gave him a sense of living, a sense of being amidst such a difficult place. And we know in history that less than a year after he wrote those words that he would be executed by the Nazi regime. Knowing one's purpose uh, can strengthen one's resolve. It can help us find meaning in our work regardless of what that work is. Knowing one's purpose in life can help you uh, as you bag groceries at the grocery store. It can help you as you uh, mop a floor. It can help you as you work and make big business tran- transactions. It can help as you teach or as you uh, act and as you sing. In um, all different ways that people live, we live in all kinds of different vocations that God has gifted us for and God has called us to be, to give glory to God in so many different different ways. But it's not the only thing. Knowing one's purpose is important, but it isn't everything. In our text this morning, reminds us of that there's a promise in addition to the purpose that we sense there's a sense that the promise moves us to places that purpose alone cannot bring us to the promise here of course is from a generous and loving God the promise of God's grace the promise of one who comes and liberates us from sin and who liberates us from death so that we might experience an altogether different kind of life even as one's who might think, whoa, we are people of unclean lips. God's love, God's grace, God's promise liberates us from that life so that we too can live a life of being sent. Of course, the uh, reformers had a way of saying things uh, and one of the ways they said it was they talked about our lives are lived quorum deo in the presence of God. We live in the presence of We live under the authority of and to the honor and glory of God. Here, Isaiah was in the presence of God. We too can live today in the presence of God because of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit as a people who not only live in that presence but who delight in righteousness and justice. So, let me ask you this question this morning Do you want to be one of those kinds of people? Do you want to be a person who lives in the presence of God? a person who delights in the way of the Lord, a person who delights in living justice and righteousness, do you want to experience that kind of life? If you do, two prayers for you this morning. The first one is this. It's a prayer of recognition. It's a prayer of confession. It's one in which we say, woe is me. I recognize who I am. I recognize that left to my own devices, woe is me. I'm a person of unclean lips. But the second is this it's also an important prayer here am i send me friends if we pray these prayers and knowing that god's love is greater than even our own words god swoops down and transforms us so that we can be those people who are sent we can be those people who live lives of faithfulness may it be so in our generation amen friends let us pray together Lord, we thank you on this morning for, again, for your great love. And as we hear in Scripture that uh, you prepare us and continually uh, to seek after us, even as we're a long way off. We pray, Lord, by faith now that you would draw us even closer to yourself this day. There are places where we have allowed ourselves to live uh, in ways that are unfaithful. Lord, we pray that you would show us the way of faithfulness. Lord, help us to be these people. These people who go and proclaim good news. Help us be these people that go and, and share Christ's love to all the world. Lord, help us to be these people that share Christ's love to our own community and within our own congregation. As you've been faithful, Lord, we trust that you will continue to be faithful. Help us to be faithful too, and praise in Christ's name. Amen.